ever stayed a good man's heart to find Positively, absolutely sure was blind I found the best that ever was Here's some other things he does He shakes my ashes, breathes my griddle Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through the works of American writers 100 pages at a time while giving my commentary and thoughts. Thank you so much for listening. In this episode, we're going to be continuing our study of Jesse Redmond Fawcett's Plum Bun. If you're just joining us, you may want to go back to the previous episode to get caught up on this book. This book is perhaps the most famous or one of the most famous novels of the Harlem Renaissance on the topic of passing, that is, of black people with light skin choosing uh, to live as white people, usually in cities, usually away from their homes where they can, where they're not recognized. In Plumbon, a woman from Philadelphia with very light skin goes to New York to live the life of a white woman, and while there she finds various frustrations. This part of the novel Plum Bun um, begins with a section called Market. Um, now, as I said in the last episode, the chapters of this book are based on a, kind of a child rhyme, or a, okay, yeah, I guess it's a children's rhyme. It's to market, to market, to buy a Plum Bun, home again, home again, market is done. And the first part is home, the second part is market, third part is Plum Bun, the fourth part is Home again, the final part is market is done. So the chapter titles essentially are the lines from the from the poem. Well, as you can tell, I have a bit of a cold, but you know, I don't want to get too behind on my production schedule, so I'm going to um, grin through this. Okay, this section of Plum Bun is called market. So what does market here refer to? Besides the the child rhyme, childhood rhyme. Well, New York City, is that the marketplace? Is the love market, which Angela, our main character, puts her feet into the market? Is it a general reflection of the commercialization of value that will shape so many of her relationships, particularly among whites in New York? Um, It could be any of these things. I think it's generally suggesting that by passing, she only can kind of put herself on the market. She can only be a commodity. If she accepts her black identity, she can be a, a fully formed human being. That seems to be Fawcett's argument when we get towards the end of the, the novel. It's, it's clear that this is the case. Well, the first thing our heroine experiences in New York is a plague of idleness. This is already a warning for the major theme of the novel, which is that passing while in New York makes Angela uncreative and unable to perform her true life's work. So, as in so many of these Harlem Renaissance novels, we get a taste of the life of the city. Um, Now, Angela's not a country bumpkin. She's not from the south. She's not from the the rural parts of the country. Uh, She's from Philly. But she's still pretty impressed with what she sees in the city. Quote, But she was amazed and impressed with this bustling, frolicking, busy, laughing, great city within the greater one. She had never seen colored life so thick, so varied, so complete. Moreover, just as this city reproduced in a microcosm all the important features of any metropolis, so undoubtedly life up here was just the same. 
she thought dimly, as life anywhere else. Not all these people, she realized, glanced cleanly at the throngs of black and brown, yellow and white faces about her, were servants, or underlings, or endmen. She saw a beautiful woman, all brown and red, dressed as exquisitely as anyone she had seen on Fifth Avenue. The man's sharp, high-bred face etched herself into her memory. The face of a professional man, perhaps. It might be an artist. So, this is her in Harlem, right? The city within the city. And it's interesting, she already notices that there are black people living fully formed lives in Harlem, and her choice to, to pass denies her access to that, right? She makes a friend with a woman named Paulette. Among other things, Paulette encourages Angela to take a lover and to acquaint herself with the men of New York City. See, you've made her shy, said Paulette accusingly. I won't bother introducing them, Angeli. You'll meet them all. You'll meet them all too soon. Laughing, protesting, the men filed out, and their unwilling hostess closed the door on them with severe lack of regret. Men, she mused candidly. Of course, we can't get along without them any more than they can without us. But I get tired of them. They're nearly all animals. I'd rather have a good woman friend any day. Yes, my place is always full of men. Would you rather have your chops rare or well done? I like mine cooked to a cinder. Angela preferred hers well done. Stay here and look around. See if you have anything to amuse you. And then a little bit later, she says, There is a great deal of the man about me. I have learned that a woman is a fool who lets her femininity stand in the way of what she wants. I have made a philosophy of it. I see what I want. I use my wiles as a woman to get it. And I employ the qualities of men, tenacity and ruthlessness to keep it. And when I'm through with it, I throw it away just as they do. Consequently, I have no regrets and no encumbrances. End quote. So this, in a sense, is, uh, I guess, another suggestion to the title of the section, Market, seeing these kind of commercialized relationships. This is something we've seen before in Harlem Renaissance novels, um, although it's from a different point of view here, because these are, these are, these are characters posing as white or, or like Paul, that a white character. Um, previously, we've seen that, especially in Home to Harlem, especially in Home to Harlem, this emphasis on, on just this kind of commercial or almost capitalistic foundation to a relationship. Her directionslessness really remains a problem despite her enrolling in art school. She spends way too much money and she's unable to see art as an end in itself. Um, and this really makes it really difficult for her to to really get her voice. She, she thinks maybe I can make money becoming an artist or something, but she... By uh, posing as white, she seems to have lost her true artistic direction. Now, she meets two men who have a big influence on her life while she's in New York. The first is Anthony Cross. The second is much more interesting to Angela, but less interesting to us as readers, and that is Roger Fielding. Um, now I'll, 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 I'll talk about Anthony later on because he's a really important character. But um, let's focus here on field, Fielding. <clears throat> Fielding is rich enough to ensure Angela a lifetime of security. But he is prejudiced and has no knowledge that Angela is an African-American. Now, during one of their dates, Ray, Roger makes a very racist comment about the black customers at the restaurant. And, and this sort of bothers Angela, as you might expect. She, she's put in this awkward position. Um, let me see if there's any N-words in this section. No, I don't think so. Okay. She turned back to his plate. His heart sank. Sink. For her, the evening was ended. Roger came back, his face flushed and triumphant. Well, I put a spoke to the wheel of those coons. They forgot themselves so quickly, coming in here spoiling white people's appetites. 
I told the manager if he brought one of them damn suits, I'd be responsible. I wasn't going to have them here with you, Angeli. Yeah, well, as you heard, I got a FaceTime request. Um, that's done with. Um, anyways, I think that, that, gets the, the, that ends that quote. It's on page 518 of the Library of America version. But it really exposes this guy, Roger, as a, as a racist. Uh, a pretty vulgar one. Um, so, events like this seem to convince Angela that she should stop seeing Roger, and there's a lot of back and forth internally in the character's mind, but she can't seem to stay away. Roger, for his part, is a playboy and quite infatuated with Angela, but his racism seems to really bother her and makes her feel guilt over, over passing. Now, of course, reading this passage uh, or these passages about her internal conflict, um, and a lot of this is in chapter four of the section called Market, we can't help but think about Angela's sister, who in fact wrote Angela informing her that she will come to live in New York City as well. So uh, Angela's sister, Virginia, who is much darker skinned, she cannot pass. So she has to come to New York City as a white, as a black woman. Now, this also makes things difficult for her passing because she can't very well totally ignore her sister socially. Um, and, you know, she's going to have to visit her from time to time. And if she gets seen visiting this black woman, then questions are going to be asked like, you know, why are you seeing her? And then her relationship will come out. But first, a bit more about Roger. Roger is of the uber wealthy of New York. And it's not very realistic that he can marry someone like Angela, even if she could effectively pass as white. She lacked a heritage that Roger's family would demand. The most she can be for him is a lover. Uh, and I think both know that. Roger knows this, although he doesn't state it directly. Um, and when it kind of comes up, he's kind of like, well, what did you expect? Angela probably knows this too, but she's a bit deluded that she can marry him and she can have this security. That's what seems to be what she's after. So while Angela is lying about passing lying about her background, her heritage, her, her identity. She's also lying about, uh, or Roger's also lying to her about what he wants out of the relationship. Now, the other man in, in Angela's life, Anthony, is a much more interesting character than Roger. He, as it turns out, is also biracial. Uh, now, Angela doesn't know it, and actually at this point, the reader doesn't know it either. But he's also passing as white. He lost his father. He tells Angela that he's Spanish. Um, and that that's kind of his excuse of why, why he's able to pass. And that he lost his father in Brazil due to some violence. Uh, he tells a story that it was some interpersonal violence in Brazil. But we learn later that he was actually killed by a racist mob in the U.S. South. And in the next episode, I'll get to talking about that whole story about the death of Anthony's father. It is an irony that makes Fawcett's point here. That passing is interfering with Angela's effort at happiness and is doing so really literally here by closing off her possibilities of having a relationship with Anthony. They have so much in common. And here's what she says of when she's trying to pick who she wants to be with, and she just kind of decides she wants to be with Roger. This is on page 524. She thought of her mother, who had loved her father so dearly, and of the wash days when she had endured for him, the long years of household routine before she and Ginny had been old enough to help her first with their hands and then with their earnings. 
She thought of the little dark shabby house and the made over dresses and turncoats. And then she saw Roger and his wealth and his golden recklessness, his golden keys which could open the doors to beauty and ease and decency. Oh, it wasn't decent for a woman to have scrub and work and slave and bear children and sacrifice their looks with, and their petty hands. She saw a mother's hands as they had always looked on wash day. They had a white, boiled appearance. No, she would not fool herself, nor Anthony. She was no sentimentalist. It was not likely that she, a girl who had left a little sister and her home to go and seek life and happiness, would throw it all over for poverty, hardship. If a man loved a woman, how could he ask her that? So it's for this reason that Angel a Angela turns her back on Anthony. So eventually Angela gets her confirmation that her sister will indeed be try coming to try her luck to live in New York City, which is possible in part thanks to the money their parents left them. This visit sets up a central tension in this part of the novel. Virginia is supposed to come on the 26th. She insists Virginia must come on the 26th as well because she can't meet later. The reason that she says Virginia can't come later is that Roger has scheduled a date with Angela on the 27th and she expects him to propose to her there. She will, in her mind, accept the proposal. Now, while she's at the train station waiting for Virginia, Roger shows up. Um, Angela must make a quick excuse for her being there, telling her him that she's waiting for someone else. Roger, of course, as probably anyone would say, well, says, of course, we'll wait together. You know, I'd like to see your friend too. So now we got this awkward situation. If Angela then just kind of says, oh, I, you know, I lied. I was here for a different reason and get out of the situation. Well, that's a bit weird. It's also, she can't very well meet Virginia without explaining why she's with this black woman. So Angela and Virginia actually end up seeing each other at the train station making eye contact, but Angela is forced to snub her because of the risk of losing what she sees as a promising marriage with Roger. Angela is forced to explain away her actions, justifying them um, as well as deal with her deep empathy for Virginia's difficulties of coming to the city. Angela's excuses, however, are far from convincing. She says this, or she thinks it. If I had spoken to Ginny, had acknowledged her, what good would it have done me or her either? After all, it was all over and she would have been exactly where she was before and I would have lost everything. And I do so want to be happy and have a good time. And this very hour tomorrow, I'll probably be one of the most envied girls in New York. And afterwards, I can atone for it all. It'll be good to all sorts of people. I'll keep humanity. Lots of colored folks will be much better off on account of me. And if I had spoken to Ginny, I could not have helped them at all. I'll help Ginny too, the darling. She'll have everything in the world she wants. So this is her excuse. Like, that if I marry this guy Roger, then I'll be able to, like, help all the black people of New York or something. It's kind of delusional and silly. On the following day, Angela is able to finally visit her sister and try to set things right. But instead, they have a big fight over Angela's decision to pass. Virginia assumes that Roger was just playing around with a colored girl. And Angela reveals that she had been passing for white in New York. Now, this is a bit strange because I thought Angela already told Virginia of her plans to pass. But they hadn't really had a lot of contact. So maybe she didn't know how far it had gone. Maybe Virginia thought she was just playing with it. But they start to really bicker about this. Um, but Virginia seems to come to terms with what is happening and begins to believe that maybe Angela really has a unique view of the world through her ability 
to stand kind of across the color line. So that becomes Angela's sort of excuse, uh, or Virginia's excuse for why she can accept Angela passing. Now, as I said in the last episode, the name of these two sisters is rather interesting to me. I wondered if it was intentional. Virginia is more grounded, more practical, and of course, darker. Like the state of Virginia itself, it can't escape the legacy of slavery and racism through any act of will. Angela can, however, float above, the above, um, lacking color that defines her sister. And of course, angels are usually depicted as white in American culture. Well, with that, we get to part three of Plum Bun, which is simply called Plum Bun. And as I said in the last episode, it seems to be a reference to a snack that is white on the outside or light on the outside, but it has this dark fruit on the inside. So that, that's Angela. Angela's a plum bun, right? This is maybe actually the shortest part of the book, coming in at just 40 pages. But there's a lot here that happens that's important to our characters. Much of the first chapter in this section of the book focuses on Angela learning that Roger simply wants to keep her as a kept mistress. There's a cute little conversation where he offers her a house with seven rooms. And Angela responds, well, won't that be too small for three people? Meaning her, Roger, and a servant. Roger then is forced to reveal that, of course, you know, he, you know, Angela's, he's not going to stay with Angela. This is the house just for her, right? So she's just going to be kind of a kept mistress. Uh, and then Roger tries to explain the environment of free love, even using, even using Angela's friend Paulette as an example. And as Fawcett tells us, a, quote, curious period of dueling ensured. This conflict worked on, on a couple levels. First, Roger wants to talk her into this hypocritical definition of free love, where Roger will be free and Angela will be kept. Second, Angela still has hope of getting a marriage offer from Roger. And are we staying interested in the possibility of material comfort that Roger can offer, even if they don't marry? She seems hopeful to the end that she can win this duel. Let's see, do we want to see this section? It's kind of a long section, so I'm not going to read it. But page 260 or 562 to 563 in the Library of America version of Plum Bun, you have this description of this duel going on in between Angela and Roger. The relationship's largest problem, though, is that Roger's often away in Georgia running some sawmill that his father owns. Now we have another level of the color line that possibly comes into focus. Roger is a vocal racist who depends on his wealth and status in part on the exploitation of Southern labor, perhaps and very likely black Southern labor. By extension, Angela is exploiting African-Americans in the South through benefiting from Roger, and this is facilitated by her rejection of her identity as a black woman. Loneliness, by being left isolated so much, leads her to try to make new friends and even create a more open relationship with her sister. She also meets a Jewish girl who is in a loft above her. Her name is Rachel, and she provides a very interesting contrast to Angela. Rachel's boyfriend is blonde, and as we learn later on, not Jewish, and poor. So we have an example of a working relationship across a very different boundary. Jew and Gentile, and, um, and in poverty, and then Angela and Roger with wealth. Angela, meanwhile, does not understand why anyone would want to risk uh, to marry a poor man. Angela convinces Roger to go to a uh, talk by an African-American intellectual named Van Meer. 
In part, this seems to be the author lecturing to our heroine. In the post-lecture discussion, Roger reveals his racism once again. But someone else makes a point that this was the lecturer's biracial background that made him such an impressive speaker. So this is the character called Martha, which is kind of a friend of them. You make me tired, said Martha. Of course he doesn't get it from his white blood. He gets it from his, all his bloods. It's the mixture that makes him what he is. Otherwise, all white people would be gods. It's the mixture and the endurance which, has, which he has learned from being colored in America and the determination to see life without bitterness. And then Roger just cuts her off and says, you know, you're just talking nonsense because, you know, ultimately he's a racist who, who can't see beyond color at all or see any complexities in it. So after three years in New York and much of it with Roger, Angela realizes that she's really out of place. She comes to know that she'll never marry Roger and she thinks through her list of friends and realizes that all of her relationships have tragic end dates. People will get married, people will move on, people will just kind of lose touch with her. So she realizes the friends she has, she's going to lose and she's not really making new friends. She realizes that Roger is really all she has in the world. And she strives to fight for it more aggressively. Her expressed neediness and demand for marriage only angers Roger and puts more strain on their relationship. Roger's inability to meet her emotional and, and, and kind of security needs and his increasingly aloofness leads her to finally break up with him. Roger accepts this apparently, you know, with very little sentiment. He seems not to care. He's just kind of like, okay, whatever. If we're going to break up, we, we just kind of move on with our lives. So that puts to an end the third section of Plum Bun. I'll explore the last 100 pages of the novel in the next episode, as well as list of some of the major themes uh, of the novel. So thank you so much for listening and bearing with my slight, you know, recovery from a cold. I know I, my voice is a bit off today. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please uh, share, subscribe, like it, uh, tell people you know who might be interested in literature about this podcast. Um, but um, if not that, I'll, I'll see you next episode. We'll finish up with Plum Bun. Um, and that, yeah. So thanks for listening. My needle greens my wheat, heats my heater, chops my meat. My man is such a handyman. Don't care if you believe us.